This video is part of an audiobook series featuring The Strange Death of Europe, Immigration, Identity, and Islam by Douglas Murray in 2017. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or visit my website for downloads. Chapter 7. They Are Here At the time she gave her Potsdam speech in October of 2010, Angela Merkel seemed to have made an important concession about the past, and even signaled a change of direction for the future in the relationship between Europe and its immigrants. Yet within just a few years, these much-applauded statements seemed almost entirely meaningless. In the speech, the Chancellor admitted that Germany had failed to integrate the people who had arrived to date. In 2010, Germany had a total of 48,589 people apply for asylum. Just five years later, Merkel allowed, if leaked internal estimates from the government were correct, up to 1.5 million people into Germany in the space of one year alone. If, multi if multiculturalism was not working, with around 50,000 people claiming asylum in Germany each year, how is it expected to work with 30 times the number coming in each year after that? If not enough was being done in 2010, how was it the case that five years later the German government's integration network was so much, indeed 30 times better? And if Germany had been fooling itself in the 1960s about the return of the guest workers, how much more was it kidding itself that those applying for asylum in 2015 would return to their homes? If multiculturalism had not been working well in 2010, it was working even less well by 2015. The same goes for Britain. If multiculturalism in Britain had failed when Prime Minister David Cameron had said it had in 2011, why was it any less failed in 2015 when the government oversaw a new record high of net migration into the country? Was the relationship between France and its immigrant populations better by 2015 than it had been a few years before, or Sweden's or Denmark's? All across Europe, the migration surge of 2015 piled further numbers of people into a model that all the existing political leaders had already admitted to be a failure. Nothing noticeable had occurred in the years between to have made the model any more successful than it had been in the past. At one stage in the crisis, Chancellor Merkel telephoned the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. He said, It is said that she asked for, the, for advice. Israel is the only country in the world to have successfully integrated a comparable number of arrivals in an evenly slightly comparable timescale namely Russian Jews entering Israel after 1990, not to mention other large-scale influxes in the decades since the founding of the state. How had Israel managed to absorb so many people and yet held together a remarkably united country, indeed perhaps an increasingly united one? There are various reasons she could have given, not least the bond formed in Israel through the common experience of compulsory service in the Israeli army and government-sponsored absorption programs. What diplomatic discretion may have prevented Prime Minister Netanyahu from pointing out, but which might have been apt, was that Israel had an advantage in that nearly all the arrivals into the country for decades had a common link in their Jewish heritage, whereas in the months and years to come, Angela Merkel and her nation would have to recognize that few of the people they let in during 2015 were German Lutherans. Even as the migration into Europe increasingly 
ex- increased exponentially to justifications that officials reiterated were the same ones that had been used for decades, and they permeated everywhere from the heads of supranational organizations down to the level of local government. In the middle of, 2005, of August 2015, as the chancellor prepared to open the borders, the mayor of the town of Goslar in Lower Saxony insisted that his town would welcome migrants with open arms. Mayor Oliver Junk, a member of Angela Merkel's own center-right party, highlighted the fact that Goslar had been losing a small part of its population each year. Over the last decade, the population of 50,000 had diminished by around 4,000 people, a factor caused by young people leaving the area to look for work as well as a diminishing birth rate among locals. In 2014, the town had taken in 48 migrants. Now the, now the mayor announced that, in his opinion, there could not be enough migrants coming into Goslar. Migrants would, he said, give our town a future. Rather than find a way to create jobs that would attract the town's young people to stay in Goslar, the mayor thought it's a sensible policy to largely replace the population with a wholly different one. During that same crucial month of August 2015, the EU head of the International Organization for Migration, the IOM, took to the pages of the Wall Street Journal in Europe to outline another familiar argument. In the opinion of Eugenio Ambrosi, it was troubling that the continent was having difficulty accepting the unprecedented wave of migrants that had already come in that year. Ambrosi claimed that Europe could easily cope with the influx. The greatest scandal, he claimed, was that Europe was, experienced, was quote, experiencing the most widespread and intense anti-immigrant sentiment seen in decades, end quote. This should change, he insisted, and one way of doing so was to explain the basic argument that he and his colleagues chose to push, which was that this influx of migrants presented a great opportunity for Europe. Migrants, he said, bring new ideas and high motivation, and also pitch in and contribute to our economies and societies when given a fair chance. Sometimes they have a better work ethic than our native Europeans. And then there came the familiar claim that Europe is getting older and will soon be dealing with a serious shortage of working-age people. Germany alone could experience a labor shortage of up to 2.5 million workers by 2020, according to the Boston Consulting Group. Our existing social security systems are not threatened by migration. Quite to the contrary, the contribution of migrants will ensure that the support Europeans receive now will continue into the future. This was another argument for population replacement, this time dressed up in the language of palliative care. Even if Europe's demographic falloff was as severe as Mr. Ambrosi claimed, the most obvious answer was not necessarily to import people from a wholly different culture to make up the next generation. If Ambrosi and his other officials were so concerned to fill any existing or future labor shortages in Germany, surely it would have been sensible, before casting a net across the globe, to look closer to home to the 25-50% to of young people in Spain, Portugal, Italy, and Greece within the European Union domestic economic zone, who were suffering from unemployment at the exact same time. People as dedicated as Ambrosi to the free marketeer argument were not even making sense of events on their own terms. More worryingly, they seemed to assume that their free marketeer arguments were the only arguments that would matter, and that the young populations of Southern Europe, among others, would not mind being leapfrogged over by anyone and everyone from the non-European parts of the world. 
And of course, as migration into Europe reached an unheard of historical peak, there remained those willing to argue that this was all perfectly normal. The only country to have taken in the same number of migrants per head of population as Germany in 2015 alone was Sweden at 1-2%. The country's 2015 arrivals alone numbered somewhere between 160 and 180,000, a historically unprecedented number even for a country with a recent history of taking refugees. So whereas in 2004 Sweden had absorbed around 400 child refugees, in 2015 alone, it had to absorb 35,000 child arrivals at the cost of tens of thousands of euros per child per year. During the summer of 2015, migrants flowed into the country daily, not only across the famous Oresund Bridge from Denmark, because between Denmark and Sweden there was no border, but also from the north. Most of those who arrived had no identity papers at all, and this was not always an accident. Residents of Malamo attested to seeing bins at the railway station filled with destroyed identity papers. Yet, even as Sweden was going through this abnormal year, the authorities there continued in the pretense that this was nothing new. In October of 2015, the government put on a conference in support of its migration policy entitled Sweden Together. The king and, king of, the king and queen of Sweden were in attendance along with most of the rest of the political establishment. Among the speakers was Ingrid Lomforce, the head of Sweden's Living History Forum. In her much praised, oh, a Holocaust education body. In her much praised speech, Lomforce insisted upon three things that immigration to Sweden is nothing new, that everyone is a migrant, really, and that in any case, there is no such thing as Swedish culture. In its way, the Living History Forum crystallized the problem piled upon problem that post-war immigration across Europe had presented. Even as events were occurring before the public's eyes, the authorities refused to concede that what was happening was anything new. When they did concede it, they only could dress it up with as an opportunity for the country. Nowhere was there a willingness to concede that some public suspicion about the consequences of these movements of people might be justified. From the 1950s onwards, the, con the continent had been united in a tendency to underestimate the number of people expected to arrive, and then to massively overestimate the country's ability to integrate those people. There were few moments of humility from the people who were making these decisions, not even over one of the grandest and most evident failings, which was the unwillingness to mo notice that the immigrant groups who came to Europe might have different views not just from mainstream society, but from each other, and that these facts and views would bring consequences of their own. Nothing demonstrates this failure in the multicultural and post-multicultural eras better than the fact that the ideologies, political and religious, of the newcomers were rarely a subject of consideration, and were almost never a permissible subject of debate. So it was that in each country, post-war immigration was discussed when it was discussed as an issue of race. The racial identities of the incomers were discussed, and any and all concerns raised about this were, re were returned along the terms of anti-racism. What, what very few people saw or mentioned was that the racial background of incomers was an insignificant matter alongside the far greater issue of creed. When Moroccans first came to Holland in large numbers, they were discussed as Moroccans. When Pakistanis first came to Britain, they were discussed as Pakistanis. The same went for Turks in Germany. 
But around the turn of the millennium, the period of multi-faithism crept up on Europe and the significance of the race of migrant groups declined, and Europe's headlines began to wonder whether the issue was not, in fact, religion. It was a subject that took most politicians and commentators in Western Europe entirely by surprise. In the 1980s or 1990s, almost nobody predicted that the first decades of the 20th century in Europe would be riven by discussions about religion. The increasingly secular continent had expected to be able to leave faith behind, or at least recognize that after many centuries, the place of religion in the modern state had been pretty much settled. If, more specifically, anybody in the late part of the 20th century had said that the early years of the next century in Europe would be rife with the discussions about blasphemy and that death for blasphemy would once again have to be expected in Europe, any audience would have scorned the prediction and doubted the sanity of the claimant. It was not that the early warning sirens that went off were not heard. How could some of them not be? The problem was that they were consistently ignored. Britain had one of the earliest warnings from Valentine's Day 1989, when the supreme leader of the revolutionary Islamic Republic of Iran, Ayatollah Khomeini, issued a document calling on all zealous Muslims of the world to know that the author of the book entitled The Satanic Verses, which has been compiled, printed, and published in opposition to Islam, the Prophet, and the Quran, and all those involved in this publication who are aware of its contents, are sentenced to death. The Ayatollah went on, I call on all zealous Muslims to execute them quickly, wherever they may be found, so that no one else will dare to insult. The head of a Tehran charitable foundation followed this up with a $3 million reward on the novelist's bounty, bounty to be reduced by $2 million if the murderer was non-Muslim. Britain and the rest of Europe learned the word fatwa for the first time. Within less than 24 hours, the target, Salman Rushdie, was in hiding, with protection provided by the British state. Soon, thousands of British Muslims were on the street supporting the imposition of Islamic blasphemy laws in Britain. In Bradford, in the north of England, the novel was nailed to a piece of wood and then burnt in the front of crowds of thousands. One man, who thanks to the controversy was on the fast track to a Muslim leadership status, um, Sir Iqbal Sakrani, was asked whether he thought the author of the book deserved death. Sakrani replied, Death, perhaps, is a bit too easy for him. Britain's most famous convert to Islam, Yusuf Islam, formerly known as the singer Cat Stevens, was asked on a television program if he would give Rushdie shelter if he were to turn up at his door. He replied, I'd try to phone the Ayatollah Khomeini and tell him exactly where this man is. Asked whether he'd go to a demonstration where an effigy of Rushdie was being burnt, he replied, I would have hoped that it would be the real thing. Across the political and cultural worlds, people debated this reawakening question of the term blasphemy in the 20th century, 21st century, for that matter. On both the political left and right, there were those who believed that the novelist had transgressed the rules of courtesy. Among the, the high Tory right, Lord Docker told a newspaper, I would not shed a tear if some of the British Muslims deploring his manners should waylay him in a dark street and seek to improve them. The Foreign Secretary, Sir Geoffrey Howe, stressed on television that he himself had no love for the book and that it was rude about Britain. Others dug up earlier criticisms of Rushdie's about Britain and concluded that the chickens were coming home to roost. The Prince of Wales allegedly said in private that Rushdie deserved everything that he got. Faith leaders, meanwhile, competed to mollify the Islamic Republic. 
the Archbishop of Canterbury, Robert Runcy, said that he understood the Muslims' feelings, and the chief rabbi, Emmanuel Jakobowicz, said that both Mr. Rushdie and the Ayatollah have abused freedom of speech. There were similar pronouncements from the leadership of the Catholic Church, Church and other denominations. From the political left, John John Lacar declared that there is no law in life or nature that says great religions may be insulted with impunity. And the Labour MP Bernie Grant, one of the first black MPs in the British House of Commons, told a meeting of fellow MPs that white people were trying to impose their values on the world, and that although he didn't agree with the Ayatollahs, Muslims in Iran should have a right to live their own lives. Besides which, burning books, he claimed was not a big issue. Still a small but determined group of people did realize what the fatwa meant in support of the novelist, whom the Ayatollah referred to as that blasphemous bastard. The novelist Faye Weldon was sitting opposite Cat Stevens when he made his comments and remarked with amazement that a police chief superintendent who was also in the studio did not simply walk across and arrest the singer for incitement to murder. In a subsequent pamphlet, Weldon claimed that Britain was paying the price for the fact that too few people had bothered to read the Quran and had instead been too happy to murmur platitudes about great world religions. This broadside in turn was viewed by some British Muslims as hate speech, and without, with even a fairly Muslim, moderate Muslim writer of the period, Zardin Sadar, claiming that it seemed Weldon could fabricate whatever she wished and produce a prejudiced diatribe simply because Muslims were fair game. In fact, it was only people associated with Rushdie who were fair game. In 1991, Rushdie's Italian translator got, was stabbed and beaten up in his apartment in Milan. In 1993, the Norwegian publisher of the Satanic Verses, William Nygaard, was shot three times outside his house in Oslo. In Britain, two bookshops were firebombed for stalking the book. And other shops, including a London department store that housed a penguin bookshop, had bombs planted in them. And in 1989, a young man called Mustafa Mahmoud Mazay blew himself up and destroyed several floors of a London hotel while priming a bomb intended for Rushdie. There were some people who realized that this was a matter of free speech, in America as well as Europe. For instance, that year's president of the writers' group PEN, Susan Sontang, organized an event at which prominent authors would read from Rushdie's novel. A bit of civic fortitude is what is required here, as she put it. But although there was some civic as well as governmental fortitude, there was barely any wider understanding of what was happening. Broad slides like Weldon's were highly unusual during the period in realizing that Rushdie had not simply had the bad luck to poke a hornet's nest that happened to be inhabited. He had poked a hornet's nest that had recently been imported into the country and that was growing. When Hilaire Belloc published The Great Heresies in 1938, he had devoted a chapter to The Great and Enduring Heresy of Muhammad, a passage that makes the satanic verses look tame. But Belloc had not had to escape into hiding or live under police protection for a decade because in the 1930s, there had not been the large influx of people, of Muslims, into Britain. At the time of the Salman Rushdie affair, there were just under a million Muslims in the UK, a number that would treble in the two decades after. Britain was undergoing a crash course in the rules of Islam, just as everybody else was going to have to in the years ahead. Thanks to the protection measures put around Rushdie by the British government, he survived the, the Satanic Verses affair. But as the author Kanan Malik put it much later, society as a whole, 
and the publishing industry in particular internalized the fatwa. Things that were published before 1989 would not be published again. The assassin's veto took over, and soon it was not only novels that, not, that might be critical of Islam, but even phonically uncritical novels that became unpublishable. In 2008, security concerns persuaded the same British, British publishers that had published Rushdie's novel to withdraw the publishing of a work of romance about the founder of Islam called The Jewel of Medina, a small independent publisher in London that picked up the novel to make a point against censorship was subsequently firebombed by three British Muslims. Apart, apart from making a society internalize the threat of violence, the Rushdie affair had another important effect on Britain. It embedded the idea of community politics along faith-based lines, because as soon as thousands of angry Muslims appeared on British streets, the question arose of who spoke for these people. In Britain, the Rushdie affair created the first organized Muslim representative organization, the UK Action Committee on Islamic Affairs, the UKACIA, was put together as a direct effort to coordinate anger about and preclude any repeat of the Rushdie Affair. In the years afterwards, this led to the creation of the Muslim Council of Britain, the MCB, the largest umbrella group claiming to represent British Muslims. The organization was not only political, but sectarian. Although the group was financially supported by Saudi Arabia, then vying with Iran to be the dominant Muslim power, it was dominated by people from the Pakistani Islamist group Jamaat-e-Islami. The creation of such an entity obviously benefited those who were almost overnight promoted from obscurity into positions such as community spokesmen, almost me always men. It also, oh, always men. It also benefited their own hardline branch of Islam, with, with each apparent or actual escalation of the crisis strengthening their hand and sidelining more liberal and independent elements within the community. In the short term, the creation of such groups appeared useful for government. As Henry Kissinger reportedly asked, quote, What number do I dial to get Europe? End quote. So the British government in the wake of the Rushdie crisis asked, what number, do I get, what number do I dial to get the Muslim community? Those who claim this was a familiar brand of left-wing politics forget that in Britain, it was a conservative Home Secretary, Michael Howard, who encouraged the creation of the MCB and made it into the interlocutory group for the government. The alleged success of the model meant that it was exported across other Western countries, where even France, despite its traditions, chose to encourage representative bodies for French Muslims, notably the Council Francais de Culte Musulman, CFCM. In France, as in Britain, this was the creation of a right-wing government and one right-wing politician in general, Nicolas Sarkozy. The downsides should have been obvious from the start, but were not. These include the fact that ordinary Muslims suddenly had a branch of religious re representation inserted between them and their political representatives. The model also favored those who were already politically active and engaged, while disadvantaging those too busy with their own lives or careers to bother with community politics, let alone community politics already tied up by sectarian groups. The model favored the loud, the extreme, the offended, and those like Jamaat that were already organized, a fact that meant their brand of sectarian politics, which was often unpopular in their country of origin, became the mainstream voice for Muslim representation in Europe. 
Four years after 9-11, Rushdie gave an interview in which he discussed Islamic efforts to dominate in the wake of the Satanic Verses affair, and in particular to exclude progressive Muslim voices. He said, quote, People weren't interested in hearing about this at the time. And then along comes 9-11, and how many people say that, in hindsight, the fatwa was the prologue and this is the main event, end quote. But even before that, there were warning signs across Europe that the continent's 21st century was going to be constantly entangled in the demands of one religion in particular because its adherents had been brought to Europe in such large numbers. One country that had a noticeable head start in these arguments was Holland. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.